novelist, poet, editor, M.J. Fiev is on quite a journey. Setting out from Haiti in her early 20s, she has, for the last 20 years, been living and writing in the United States. With the trauma of her own childhood firmly in mind, she is the author and creator of the wildly popular Badass Black Girl series, published by Mango. As she says in her own words, we are finding, reclaiming, asserting our voices, inspiring others, and changing the way the world thinks about black girls and black women. MJ Fiev is my guest on this episode of The Literary Life. MJ, welcome to The Literary Life. Thank you so much, Mitchell. Such a pleasure to be here. It's wonderful to see you. How have you been? Um, I've been doing okay, just keeping up with everything that's going on in the world, um, in my world, meaning not just everything we're going through in the U.S. right now, but in Haiti as well, because things have been a little tense lately. Tell us what the latest is. So um, there are two main issues in Haiti right now. The first one is that there's been a spike in insecurity, um, a lot of gang activities and just people being afraid to be in the streets. And that coincided with um, the coronavirus being um, coming as a shock for Haitian people, because I don't know if you kept abreast of what was going on in Haiti, but the strain that we had in the US at first had minimal effect on Haiti. People were just continuing their everyday life. Some people were getting sick, but the recovery rate was very high. So gatherings continued for a whole year. It was just business as usual for the most part. But now two more strains have been identified and people are just getting sick. Mm many, many people and whatever crisis we had in the US a year ago, they're experiencing that crisis right now, only they don't have the infrastructures that we have in the United States. So people are very afraid of what that means. Have vaccines made their way to Haiti yet? Um, It started, I think, last week. The one that is being offered, though, is the AstraZeneca. And I know that there's been a lot of um, fear about that one. Um, but that's the one that is being made available. To Do you people. think there'll be a natural hesitancy among Haitians to take the, the, the vaccine? Oh, I know there will be. I mean, there's already been a campaign on social media against the vaccine in Haitian mm-hmm. communities. People really believe that it's just a ploy to get them sicker. Um, There's a lot of conspiracy theories involving vaccines in Haiti, which is understandable because of um, our history. Historically speaking, um, Haiti has always been considered a test site where a lot of big companies from other countries have Thought, have thought it was okay to come to the country and just experiment so that they, they can get either approval or 
denial of their of their products. That's happening in this country as well, in communities of color too. Do you you have still have a lot of relatives there? Do you still have a lot of family? I do actually. Most of my family members are in Haiti. My my mom goes back and forth because I have a sister here with me, and I have two sisters in Haiti. So she she goes back and forth to be with all of her daughters. I have uncles. Um, Aunts, nephews, nieces, extended family members. I mean, um, half my life is still in Haiti. For a while, I went back and forth. Um, So I always felt that I was living in two places because I traveled to Haiti at least once a month. So the, the connection was still very real until the the earthquake happened in 2010. I was so devastated. I, I, I did not recognize Haiti when I went back that in, around that time. So I stopped going as often. I still went, but now I consider the United States to be more of a home than Haiti. Tell me what brought you here, if you could. Absolutely. I always wanted to leave Haiti at some point, it didn't really matter to me where I would end up. I just wanted to leave. I felt like a prisoner there, not just because Haiti is a difficult country, because there are so many wonderful aspects to Haiti that the, even the political situation wouldn't have been enough to encourage me to leave. But I was also in a difficult family situation. So I've always wanted to leave. So I tried to leave several times. Um, I considered the Dominican Republic at some point since they offered programs and welcomed Haitian students there with scholarships and other advantages. I considered um, Puerto Rico at some point because there was also a program encouraging Haitian students to travel to Puerto Rico and study there. But it turns out that I ended up in the United States. My uncle had applied for residency for me and I was in my third year in college in Haiti when I received a call from the US embassy saying, that my paperwork was being looked at and we started the process of actually moving to the U.S. When I say- Was your we, uncle living here in the United States? Yes, he had been in the United States for 20 years and he had actually applied for uh, my entire family 10 years before. But by the time they looked at our paperwork, I was the only one who qualified along with my parents. So um, I decided to move to the United States. I have to say that college is a little different in Haiti. So when I say third year of college, I actually means a specialized school is in, it was a med school. When you graduate in Haiti, you have to choose your career right away. There's no going into the liberal arts and trying to find yourself. You need to know. So I wanted to be a doctor at that point. So I went to the university to become a doctor. And I was in my third year of med school when I decided to leave everything behind and move to the United States. 
but the literary life and books has always been part of your life, even in even as a young girl. And so talk about how important books have, have been for you while you were in this, the tumult of growing up in Haiti and what it was like. I know that it might be cliche. A lot of writers say that books save their lives. And um, I'm just going to use that cliche because in my case, it's so true. I grew up in a family that was really dysfunctional. Um, and I don't think that I would have survived emotionally without books. I lived in fear. I, I, I was in fear 24 seven, even when I was away from home. I was worried about what was waiting for me when I went back. And in addition to that, I had to deal with just growing up in a strange country when it comes to the political climate. There were days when we did not go to school, for instance, because Port-au-Prince was just on fire. They were burning cars, burning buildings downtown. People were protesting. It was, the violence was, both organized and random. On some days, you knew that people had actually planned the whole thing. And on some other days, it just erupted out of nowhere. So I was a very preoccupied child. And reading books kept me afloat, being able to distance myself from reality and just find comfort in fictional characters and fictional worlds it made a did you find access to books were you was it in school was it at the library did your parents read so let's talk a, a little bit about books in haiti um books in haiti are real privilege the not many people can read in Haiti. There are so many people in Haiti, um, about 9 million people living in Haiti. And the level of, I mean, maybe 5% um, is properly educated. The, those are facts. Those, the, I'm not making stuff up. We are a very uneducated country. The people who are educated are well-educated, but those who are not are really not. There, there is a huge gap. Um, I was lucky enough to be born in a family of educators. So my mom it was a teacher. My father was a teacher. My aunts were teachers. I was surrounded by people who valued books. And I was also lucky that I was in a family who could afford um, a good education because there is supposedly public education in Haiti, but um, the level is not great. Um, it, teachers are always on strike because they're not getting paid. They are not properly trained. So I, I, I was privileged in that sense. I, I studied loving stories at school. I had good teachers and most of the books that we received were from either Canada or um, France because at the time French was the main language used in school. It, recently there's been a push for Haitian Creole as well but when I was growing up you, could, you would be punished if you even spoke 
Haitian Creole mm-hmm. at school. So um, I was really into stories and I discovered that when I found myself rereading those stories without prompting from anyone. I would get home, read stories that we had shared in class, read additional stories that no one had asked me to read. Can you remember some of the authors and some of the stories? They were all from textbooks. I just remember that the characters were young. They were my age and it was all about living the, the, the good life, being a good person. Um, I went to Catholic school so um, there was definitely an agenda. It was all about being a good Christian. So a lot of those stories reflected that. It was about, um, they were about what happens when you don't follow the rules, when you don't listen to your parents. And um, I was intrigued by those new settings because all I knew was the Caribbean and I was being exposed to people who were having tea for lunch, who were having uh, picnics. Um, later on, um, there is an incident that I like to call saving wee wee that really um, defined me as a writer. I love books, but I didn't read books. I read stories because I didn't think that I would ever have the attention required to read an entire book. But my sister was an avid reader. She read one book a day, sometimes two books a day. I mean, we're stuck at home, there's violence in the street, we're not going anywhere on many of those days. She's reading and I'm watching her read and I'm going through my textbooks, but not reading books, not reading um, novels or anything. Then there was this one day at school and I want you to imagine the school, it's gigantic. It's a colonial style, several buildings, it's run by the nuns. So you have where the nuns sleep and um, where, where they eat, then you have the different grade levels. It's, a, it's many buildings and many yards and many trees and everything is made of wood. So you can hear everything. You can hear the birds, but you can also hear the, the, the buildings kind of setting um, and doors being open and closed. But after hours, it's very, very quiet, very quiet. And my mom was late. Um, from work. So it was about six. So school had been out for about three hours. There's nobody but my sister and me. And she's waiting for my mom by the entrance. And I'm exploring. I'm going to places I'm not supposed to go. And I find this lady by the high school library. And she has all those piles of books. Um, She's in an alleyway and she's putting them in trash bags and putting them in the trash. And this was an abomination to me because I knew the value of books. I knew the pleasure that my sister got from reading books. I knew the value of stories. And I'm like, what are you doing? And she's like, well, they're um, ordering new books for the library. Those are old, some of them are missing pages or they are throwing away all the old books. And I can recognize some of the characters. My sister read a lot of um, series. There was one about um, that was called Le Club des Cinq. It was those five friends fighting um, to to um, that particular series was about five friends um, trying to solve mysteries. And there was another one with seven friends. And then there was um, a little I don't, I don't remember if it was a leprechaun or just 
a strange little character with um, a bell that rang whenever he said yes. And he was always saying yes. He was saying wee wee, wee wee. So his name was wee wee. And I recognize this character on the cover and I was filled with a sense of injustice. How can you throw this book away? And I told the lady, give me the books, I'll take them home. And she's like, no, I have to throw them away. I'm doing my job. I mean, she didn't care where the books went, but she certainly didn't want a small kid saying, yes, I'm gonna take them and then dumping them somewhere in the school. But my mom was at the gate by that point. So my sister came to fetch me and I'm like, my mom is here, just help me carry all the books to the car. So we carried all those bags, those huge bags. My mom came to help, the ladies helping, we're putting everything in the trunk. And when I went home, I remember the relief I felt just taking those books out and checking them to see what pages are missing and what I could take, um, what needed to be just repaired. And I had a new collection of books and I felt a special connection with them and I started reading actual books. And it was a great feeling. I started the same series that my sister had been reading for a while and it just brought me so much, uh, so much joy. I know it was a long anecdote, but- It's a it's wonderful <laughs> anecdote and it's, it sets you on a course for the rest of your life really because your whole life has been about books. So when did you make the transition from being a reader to a writer? And I know that you published your first books while you were in Haiti, right? I did publish my first book when I was in Haiti. I think that my, my, my beginning as a writer was linked to one of those books I found that I rescued. I remember reading one of them and not liking the end. I felt that it was a little bit unfinished and unrealistic. And I remember just rewriting the ending of the story and going to my sister and saying, hey, this is how I think this story should have ended. And she told me, oh my God, this is so great. You should really write stories. And all it took was one person telling me that I was good at it. One person giving me permission to write. And when I became a, a, a writer and I started teaching other people about writing, that's one thing I always remember that sometimes people just need one person to tell them, you know what, you're good at this, go ahead. And if I can be that person, I'm happy to be. So your first book was a young adult book, right? And it was a book that you wrote in French. And tell us, do you feel connected to it even now? Absolutely. When I think about my writing career, I, I find it hard to dissociate it from my journey as a Black woman find, finding herself. So I always say that I go from being lost to finding myself to then healing and then overcoming. And looking at my first book, for instance, I wrote it when I was still lost, meaning that I wasn't sure what it meant to be a Black girl growing up in the Caribbean, growing up in the world, and what my place was supposed to be in the world. All the books that I read, um, did not include Black characters, um, not in elementary and middle school anyway. They, they were all from France or Canada and 
I did not find myself in those books. It wasn't until high school that I was introduced to Haitian literature because in our literature was mostly for um, older people. So there was no point in introducing it in middle school. And even then most of the writers were male. There were some female writers, but they wrote mostly about poetry and the, the literature classes actually focused on how, how much they were influenced by European literature. And it took years for even our most renowned poets in Haiti to write about Haitian matters. A lot of them wrote about the falling snow. There's no snow in Haiti. So I could not relate to a lot of those books. Well, at a, at a certain level, because a good book is relatable no matter the characters, no matter the setting, right? Because it's about the human experience. So there was, yes, I love books. I love those stories. I, I, I can connect it to a certain point, but I'm not finding myself. And when I studied writing my first book, The Fire of Revenge, that became very obvious that there was this, this um, disconnection. I found myself struggling to write about Black characters, about Black girls. I wasn't sure how to describe them physically because I had no models. Every, every book I had read, um, you know, the characters had straight nose and um, they, 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 they were white for the most part. So I did not know how to describe black skin on the page. I did not know uh, that I had permission to talk about the internal life of a black girl. What do black girl, girls think about? And if I think about who I am as a black girl, am I, uh, Am I a representation of all Black girls, not just in Haiti, but in the world? I was very aware of my privilege. I knew that my experience as a Black girl was really different from a girl who has to walk three hours to get to school in the morning and who arrives to school um, without having eaten breakfast and doesn't eat until 2 p.m. So I knew at a certain level that I had to find who I was and who I was in comparison to the people around me as well. So in, this book has a lot of merit in terms of what it does. It was, in, horror is not a genre that is really published in Haiti and that first book was horror. So it was received with acclaim, but you can definitely find um, that there are issues that I was still trying to find out who I was. One of the characters, for instance, is supposedly Haitian, but has those striking, striking blue eyes, com completely unrealistic. So um, I was lost and then I was found. <laughs> By the time I wrote La Bête, which, which is um, the title that really made my career in Haiti, um, the, the literal translation is The Beast. I knew who I was. Um, I knew um, what the expectations from society were. Um, from a black girl in Haiti, I understood the dynamic that existed between men and women in Haiti. I knew how the world saw us and how much we had to fight for respect and just for, um, for surviving in Haiti. Were you living in the United States when Labette came out? 
No, I was still in Haiti. It just that I had matured a lot. Writing and reading had forced me to think about the big picture, to think, to really think about who I was. So I went um, on a journey of discovery, um, finding my voice, which again, is such a privilege in Haiti because not everyone gets to find your voice and publish books. Well, it's also pretty remarkable that you were publishing in your early 20s, right? How many books did you publish before you moved here to the United States? I want to say about five. I'm kind of losing track because later on they were republished and some of them were put in the same volume. So I wrote my first book when I was 13, so I was very young. So no, no wonder that I was so lost back then. But it got published when I was 16. So it took me three years to kind of really um, reach the point where I was satisfied. Um, so, so tell me, for those who might be wondering, what is it like to publish in Haiti? What is it like? What, uh, uh, you know, t- tell me a little bit about the literary culture there. I mean, we know that it's a vast and very complicated and nuanced literary culture, but as a young girl publishing, did you have to have an agent? Did you just send it off to a publishing house? And then how was the book then? Because it was wide, all of your work was widely read. So how did it get disseminated as well? So in the 90s in Haiti, when I published my first book, well, my first couple of books were published in the 90s, um, there was no such thing as self-publishing. So you, you were to either go to the local publisher and try to get your book accepted. So it wasn't too different from the US. You didn't need an agent, but they had to love the book in order to publish it or you went directly to a printer. So I guess it is self-publishing, but not as we know it now. Um, and the printer would, would still require that you do certain things. Um, they, they, they would ask you if someone had reviewed the text or they, they would ask you to, to pay something to have the book reviewed. So it was a be- the beginning of self-publishing really, where it just, your, your good neighbor trying to help you and make sure that you don't make a, that you don't publish something that is deplorable. So um, I had to find editors. I had to do the work that a publisher would have done. Um, I worked with my aunt who was a literature teacher. I, I worked with one of my teachers who was uh, um, an English, well, a, a French and English teacher. And um, I also had to hire a designer. So yes, the beginning of self-publishing as we know it now, but it wasn't on demand. So then we had to, ha- to, to pay for, the, for it to print the book. And um, you can imagine how privileged it was for me to publish because all this is very costly and Haiti is a very poor country. So my parents were definitely not interested in, in my career as a writer at first. They saw it as a hobby, but my aunt convinced them that it was a worth the investment because she really loved the book when she was my first reader. Well, my sister was. My, my first adult reader was my aunt. So um, back then, it, it, we didn't have many 
books being published in Haiti. So um, it, it was it was an easy sell if I if if that's the way to say it because there were not many choices. You had um, the books that were being edited and printed in in France, which was the the best thing that could happen to a Haitian writer to to get accepted by a, a French publisher. Then you had the local publisher, which was very uh, rigorous in their process as well. Then you had people who could afford to to publish the book themselves with the understanding that those books were high quality as well, because um, if you're going to invest all that money, you don't want to lose your reputation over a book that is not well published. But later, um, there was an explosion in Haiti in terms of publishing. Um, It became cheaper and easier to publish. And really many people who did not have a voice before, that's early um, 2000s, they could publish because um, I don't know if the technology changed with the printers, but it just became cheaper. The national presses um, had uh, this whole campaign to get more books published and people also started publishing in Creole. So right now there are so many books being published. Um, the only problem with that of course is also the problem that we're encountering in the US that there is that the quality went down a little bit too. So um, people are still very careful about what books they they buy because everybody, can publish now and the books are not um, necessarily reviewed by editors. In this period of where you were writing fiction, in essence, your reading also began to mature too. So who were you reading during this period? Who were some of the authors that had the greatest impact on you? I was reading everything. I was a big nerd growing up. I mean, I had so many varied interests. I remember walking into my dad's office one time and he had just purchased a book about uh, agronomy in Haiti. And I'm like, hmm, I wonder how much of this I'm going to understand. And I grabbed it and I read the entire thing. I I mean, I was reading French literature. So from reading the... um, Moliere, which was mandated at school, to Descartes, which was mandated at school too, but I read it way before I discovered Descartes um, at at school. I was reading Stephen King, um, so I was being introduced to American literature. Stephen King was on my list. I was reading a lot of uh, Russian um, authors. I was trying to discover how the world worked, and it was just fun. To, to be able to, 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 to compare and contrast, to say, oh, okay, so this is what we are doing. This is what other people are experiencing. I was really reading everything. I have to say uh, that Stephen King and Gary Victor, who is, a, who is a Haitian Stephen King, they had um, a real influence on me. And I know that my young self was really thirsty for black female writers and the just the black female experience 
but I cannot deny the fact that writers like Stephen King, um, not necessarily it's novels, but it's short stories. They really, I mean, they really had a big impact on me. Um, horror, then horror was something that, that had an impact on you, right? Yes, for and sure. Now there's a really, there's an interesting movement now among so many uh, black writers of black horror, actually. And it shows itself in film too, with the films of like Jordan Peele and others. Do you see yourself coming from that tradition as well? Um, from, you know, emerging into the world where horror had such a, such an impact on you? I mean, um, I, I think that discovering black writers writing horror and science fiction was such an important moment in my life. People like Octavia Butler. I was going to say, yes, when I discovered her, I, I mean, it was incredible to me. I did not know that there were black women out there working on those topics because again we are a francophone country country so i was only getting books in translation from america so there is an entire um section of american literature that i was only introduced to when i moved to the u.s and um i started reading a little bit more in english. when did you learn english did you learn english in haiti or in the u.s i did learn it in um in haiti it's a required topic in most most schools so um, you get about four years of English. And of but it course, wasn't until you came here that you started actually reading, reading books in English. I, I did. I, I remember reading the Sun Valley High. I, I, <laughs> I, I didn't get half of it because there's a, there's a lot of vernacular in it. Sure. Um, but I got the gist of it. And because I was a nerd, I just pushed through and, and read the entire books knowing that I was only getting like three three quarters of it. Did you ever read the work of Tanana Reeve Do? Do you know Tanana Reeve's work? Yes, I discovered her um, when I moved to the US. So there, there was this book, The Between, that I just loved. Yeah. And she has a collection of short stories that is relatively recent. Um, it came right before the ghost house um, and it, the stories mix horror, but it, it's, it, it's historical horror because a lot of it has to do with a period of time when um, life in the US was almost impossible for black people. Well, Tanana Reeves work is remarkable. In fact, she teaches a course at UCLA in black horror and she's written about it and i'm fascinated by it i'm fascinated by the idea particularly of you know black women who are attracted to the horror genre as well it's such an interesting um it's such an interesting cultural force now you can see it in film you can see it in television you can see it in books mm -hmm. uh it's really really interesting but you've actually you actually transitioned from being a writer who just wrote about experience and you now see books and reading as something that can empower, right? So you have just started something that has taken off like wildfire, the Badass Black Girl series, right? Yes. And that has to do, 
you know, it's kind of, you, you got into like prescriptive nonfiction, right? Where you really felt like what you wanted to do was help people and help empower them by knowing so, something about themselves, kind of like what you went through as a young reader and a young writer. So talk about the impetus for Badass Black Girl and where it stands and some of the books that are involved with it and the website and the community. It's, it's taken on a life of its own. When I studied my reading journey, when I became a voracious reader, it was all fiction at first. And fiction is such a lifesaver. You, you discover worlds that you, you wouldn't know that you you wouldn't dare imagine sometimes you you meet other characters you mean you mean real and imagined places right and um i love fiction to death i still read so much fiction i still write fiction too but um i mentioned that i read everything and i also read um in addition to fiction and poetry i read a lot of self-help books growing up. I was just interested in knowing how successful people got where they were. And I also was trying very hard not to be like my father. Um, I was being compared to him all the time because I, I was a very impatient child. I was a very angry child. And those were two of his, uh, of his flaws. So I was terrified that I could become the person that he was. Um, so I read a lot of books about self-control and just how to be successful. And I love them. I, I learned a lot about just how to be a better person. But I could never really find someone like me on those page, pages. They talked about topics that were um, middle-class America or just... Um, sometimes for you, you wondered who the audience was because there was you could feel um, that the authors just had very privileged lives. They they did not have to worry about some of, of what I had to worry about. Um, the fact that my entire life I got the message that if you're black, you're not you're not as good as if you're white, for instance. I remember it thinking about the meaning of beauty as a young girl, wondering if I was beautiful. And I'm looking at my hair and I'm looking at um, those characters in, on TV with uh, the flowing hair down, down, down the back. And I'm like, that's not me. I'm never gonna be beautiful. Is it, To be beautiful is to be fair, which is a word that came up over and over in literature, um, the girls were fair. Um, that, that wasn't me. My, here I am with my black skin. What do I know about beauty? The, the, the way that beauty was described, um, how it, it, the lips and the nose and, and the hair and it, the, 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 how delicate the body was. I'm like, here I am, I have a big butt and um, I don't fit, fit the description at all. So those people being described in those books, the people I was seeing on TV, they were not like me. And as I was, as, as I became a teacher, 
um, a writing coach, Annette, I started wondering how different my life would have been if I had gathered the same kind of information, but written for a Black girl, saying, hey, this is what you do to love yourself. This is how you love your body. This is how you love your mind. This is how you use your history to propel yourself forward instead of um, thinking about racism as this, this wound that will never heal um, in your lifetime, right? And I decided I'm gonna write the book that Young and MJ would have read. And I started talking about topics that were important to me, um, not just racism, but also colorism, because I, I come from a, a black country. I mean, if you're, if you're not black and you enter a room, everybody notices because it's a black nation, but there are prejudice against different shades of black. And nobody really talked to me about that growing up. It was just taken for granted that if you're, uh, a light black, you're supposed to be better than if you're very dark. And I always wanted to be in the kind of black that my dad was because he had this beautiful dark black skin that, that would shine in the sun. And But he, he would tell us stories about how hard it had been for him to be that kind of black among blacks. And I was intrigued and I really wanted to do more, but there was no book about just being black. So I decided to start writing those books to, to talk about things that um, are not talked about in other books. How do you react when uh, your, your, the people who care about you seem to think that you're inferior because you don't look a certain way? Because sometimes, um, it comes from it, it. It comes from home. The it the the. It, I want to say hate, but it's not like um, overt hate. It's a hate of self that is becomes generational. It comes from the people closest to you who make you feel that you're not good enough as a black person, as a black kid, a black boy, a black girl. I wanted to be able to talk to girls about that. So my the first book in the series, in the Badass Black Girl series is titled Badass Black Girl. Then I wrote Empowered Black Girl and later Resilient Black Girl, which is coming out um, in the fall of 2021. Then I was approached by a lot of teachers and parents and they said, well, do you think that my son will will get something from Badass Black Girl. And my sister approached me because she has a, 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 son, a son going to college right now. And she, she's like, well, I, I feel that he needs to be ready. He's leaving Haiti, he's going to, to Texas. Uh, he needs to know a little bit about that, that ex what that experience is going to be. And, and do you think he's gonna enjoy Badass Black Girl? And I said, well, I have a hard time imagining a, a boy reading Badass Black Girl. And she encouraged me to start um, a series for boys as well. So I talked to one of the editors at Mango, um, Nathaniel Parker, and he said, you know what, let's do it. And now we're working on a series is um, my editor, 
um, because I have experience with boys. Uh, I've been a teacher for such a long time, middle school. I spent um, years in elementary school too. I taught high school for a little while. I I'm still teaching college. So I have had those conversations with boys as well, what it means to be a black boy in America, a black man in America. So, but um, um, I understand the value of editing. So when Nate said, I'm game, I started writing for boys as well. So now I write for boys and girls about um, strategies just to live a more fulfilling life as a black person in the world. You wear so many different hats. And one of those hats too is as a, um, an editor at a publishing house, right? Yes. So you also work at Mango Mango Publishing, which is located here in Miami, and uh, we're lucky to have it. And so tell us a little bit about what it feels like to be able to edit other people and bring books the way you had books published, publish other people's books. I love Mango. Diversity has always been an issue in publishing. Um, I know that many publishing houses are trying to change that. But Mango has never had a problem with diversity. If you go on uh, the Mango page, I mean, we're from all over the place. We have people from Europe, people from uh, the Caribbean. I mean, uh, one of our designers from Singapore, it's, it, it's so diverse. I loved it right away. I fell in love with the people at Mango because um, they just value diversity in a way that I, I hadn't witnessed before in publishing. And um, I, I was a teacher for a long time. I also worked as an interpreter. I knew that I wanted to dedicate my life to writing and editing, but it was always a side venture. Then um, Mango found me. Um, someone recommended that they contact me and they did. And from one day to the next, my life was changed. I was solely uh, in a writing world and I was, I was so happy. I love working with authors because it doesn't matter how good an author you are, you need an editor. I need an editor every single time. Um, I don't care how mature I get, uh, how insightful I am. I still write reprehensible things sometimes. And I need someone to keep me grounded to say, MJ, you're not making any sense. Or do you realize that um, how, how insane you're being right now on that page? And I love being that person for, for someone else to be able to help them just get better. I've had uh, the opportunity to work with people in business, um, with people in writing um, historical um, pieces. One of the books that I love the best was The Black Men on the Titanic um, about um, LaRoche, La um, who was um, of Haitian descent actually, and died on board the Titanic. Um, the book is about his life um, the book was written by a Caribbean writer, Serge Pile, and I just love, love this book. I, I loved um, fact-checking and just having conversations with the author. 
books continue to be my go-to in, in order for me to just be balanced in this world. Just so hard sometimes to be a black person in this world. Tell, me about, <laughs> tell me about the influence or not even the influence, but tell me about uh, the, the Haitian writers that are publishing now that you admire and that you respect and that you want to let other people know about. Absolutely. I mean, Edwish Danticat, of course, I have to, to mention her. She's done so much in terms of um, just putting Haiti, just pushing Haiti forward with, with um, her books and just creating awareness of what's going on in Haiti and what it means to be a Haitian person in Haiti and also in the diaspora. So um, for if someone is, is trying to understand Haiti for sure, Edwidge is the go-to. But of course, there are other writers and many of them are in translation. Uh, Marie Chauvet is one that I encourage everyone to read. Uh, she was actually translated in English and um, she's just amazing. Um, we have another local writer, Fabienne Josaphat, uh, who wrote a, a novel about um, the baby doc and papa doc era, uh, mostly the papa doc era. And um, that's another title that people should absolutely get if they want to understand Haiti, not just politically, but also the dynamics that exist within families and um, how the political life infiltrates the family life and not always, not, not in a good sense most of the time. So for sure, um, those writers, there's um, Katia G. Ulis, who also writes mostly fiction. She's, she's published by Akashic. She's such a wonderful writer. Um, if you do read French, Gary Victor, um, I mentioned him um, before, is, I mean, he has an eye for identifying what's, what needs improvement with mm. Haitian society, what, is, what doesn't make sense. And um, he, he, he does a lot of satire. Um, he writes horror, he writes fantasy, he writes also very realistic fiction. So he, he, he loves all those different genres, all those approaches to the, the issues of Haiti. But, you know, I also know you as a poet, you're quite an accomplished poet, and you have a number of poetry books out as well, and you are, you're included in a lot of anthologies. MJ, I know you as many different things, but I also know you as a poet, and you're quite an accomplished poet, and I wonder if you could read a couple poems for us as well. So I have a poetry book out, and it's titled Happy Okay. Poems about anxiety, depression, hope, and survival. Um, one of the topics that have always been important to me, in addition to talking about Haiti and um, talking about what it meant to experience violence, not just outside the home, but inside the home as well, and being able to give a voice to um, so many people who are afraid of talking about taboo topics, because... Um, 
Haiti is a place where you're not encouraged to, to, to share stories that are private. It's okay for you to talk against the government. Well, it's okay now. During <laughs> the Chevalier era, uh, you could get killed for speaking against the government, but now it's become just normal. Speak against the government, speak against anything that's going on in Haiti, but please keep your private life private. So um, talking about violence, home violence was um, very uncomfortable for many people to um, read about, particularly my family created quite a tense situation <laughs> for me. Um, but I really wanted to talk about violence, but I also wanted to talk about depression. It's another huge taboo not just in, Haitian, in the Haitian community, but in the Black community in general. And I could even say in general. Um, people will talk about it until um, they're involved. If they suffer from mental health issues, then they'll talk about it as this general thing, but will not necessarily share their experience, which makes sense. People, uh, people don't want to be looked down on. So... I wanted to talk about my experience with depression. Um, I'm my father's daughter and my dad um, was undiagnosed, but he had a lot of the symptoms of being bipolar. Um, and as I said, I struggled for a long time um, with anger and with just being unpredictable. So I needed to get um, my, my emotions under control. I was later diagnosed with um, depression and I wanted to talk about depression through, in my poetry. So I'm going to read a section from Happy Okay to give a little bit of a background. It's a story of Paloma. Paloma is struggling with depression and she's trying to get out of a relationship with um, Jose Armando. And she's trying to get out of the relationship because she understands that she's become um, a weight on his shoulders. So the book talks not just about the consequences of depression on the person suffering from it, but also on the person living with someone who has depression. So this is in Paloma's voice. I'm tired of being defined by words like thyroid, cortisol, and brain, and brain chemistry. The real world enters me and I stay up late and drink Cuba Libres. I gorge on my own heart. If you don't let me go, I'll devour yours next. The room doesn't hit my throat like a fist, but crawls in smooth, teasing fingers, bringing me back to old days, to a space outside of space. Last night, you told me you loved me, and I said, thanks. Not because I don't love you, but because I'm a rat in a maze I keep forgetting I built by myself. 
when life unravels, it does in ways I never expected. During these hours of perplexity and private sorrow in Iolia, I am empty. I am glass. I stare at the quarter moon hanging above the trees, their branches pregnant with unripe mangoes. Everything is transitory, vaguely out of time. I'm engulfed in the incessant drone of things happening. I want to be lit a fire, orange shapes that will flicker and deepen in color, ashes billowing with fury. I imagine blowing on a flame harder and harder until it becomes a conflagration that swallows the world. But nothing ignites. There is no spark to start the world burning. The only thing constant is the incessant voice in my bones, screaming doom and decay. We are dying, alone, together, all the same. Sometimes I think I am missing, I am missing the key to unlock my mind from all this gloom that rings in my spine like a doomsday chime. I'd like to toss off this cloak of heavy and wear a delicate robe of glee. And sometimes I think it might just be that easy to do, just change out my mood like a shirt I've forgotten to launder. Mm. So beautiful, MJ. Thank you so, so much. I love that line, I gorge on my own heart. <laughs> Something I won't forget. Thank you so much for being on The Literary Life, MJ. And I know that I'll be seeing you in real life, <laughs> in person, sometime soon. See you soon. Thank you again. It was a pleasure.